Hi there. You're listening to the Hellenistic Age Podcast. Episode 93, The Seleucid Empire, The Peace of Apamea. Once again, King Antiochus III suffered the bitter taste of defeat. Following his humiliating evacuation of Greece, the destruction of his army on the plains of Magnesia meant that he was forced to come to terms with the victorious Roman Republic. He had taken to Sardis while the Romans looted the battlefield, and the Scipio brothers received the submission of neighboring cities like Magnesia at Sipilum. Antiochus and his family retreated to Apamea in Phrygia, leaving behind Sardis, Ephesus, and Magnesia on the Menander to throw open their doors for the incoming Romans. The official Zeuxis was sent to Scipio Africanus on the king's behalf, looking to begin the peace talks, to which the commander agreed, but demanded the immediate payment of 500 silver talents, along with 2,500 talents once the Senate ratified any treaties they struck. In early 189, the Senate welcomed the arrival of Scipio's officers, Antiochus's embassy, Rhodian delegates, and King Eumenes himself. The Adelid ruler made the first speech, praising the Roman commanders for their victories on land and sea, and all the fanfare that went with it. He then emphasized his loyalty and that of his father, Attalus, to the Roman cause, citing his accomplishments and the damage inflicted upon his lands during the war. When the senators inquired about what Eumenes asked for as a reward, the king admitted that he would be fine with whatever the Romans had to offer, but wasn't shy about stating that he would not be predisposed to ruling over whatever lands were stripped from Antiochus's control. Embassies from the Smyrnans and Rhodians followed suit, providing their recommendations for what ought to be done. Last was the Seleucid mission, who acknowledged their wrongdoing but asked to forward everything on behalf of the king. The penalties were initially discussed with Antiochus's representatives during the immediate aftermath of Magnesia, but the final treaty was not ratified until the spring of 188. The document, preserved on bronze tablets, is directly cited by both Polybius and Livy, who lists the following terms. Antiochus was to evacuate all lands north of the Taurus Mountains and west of the Halys River, the modern Kizilermak, thus restricting his westernmost territories to Cilicia and the border of Syria. An enormous indemnity of 12,000 talents was to be paid to Rome over a fixed period of 1,000 talents per year, having already paid an additional 3,000 talents, making it a total of 15,000, along with 540,000 modii of wheat, about 135,000 bushels. This was to be accompanied by an indemnity of 70 talents of silver per year for five years, plus a substitute payment of 127 talents instead of grain, all to be given to Eumenes for a total of 477 additional talents as compensation for the ravaging of his territory. Antiochus was to give up all of his elephants that were stationed in Apamea, along with all of his warships outside of ten vessels. No mercenaries would be recruited from Roman subject territories, and he was unable to wage war in Europe nor against the islands of the Aegean. Members of the king's circle responsible for encouraging war, namely Thoas of Aetolia and Hannibal Barca above all others, were to be handed over. Lastly, twenty hostages were to be held in custody in Rome to ensure the king's good behavior including his own son, Prince Mithridates. He was therefore unable to sail past Cape Sarpedon, the modern Goksu Delta, unless delivering tribute, hostages, or delegates. 
In return for all this, Antiochus was to earn the friendship of Rome for all time. Such were the penalties of the king's war against Rome. The Roman allies profited immensely. For his loyalty and service in the war against Antiochus, Philip V of Macedonia was granted an early release from the indemnities placed upon him in the treaty of the Second Macedonian War. He was also reunited with his son Demetrius, who was held hostage in Rome. The Rhodians kept their autonomy and secured trading privileges, and gained the sizable territories of Lycia and Caria. Of all of Rome's allies, Eumenes would emerge from the conflict with the greatest reward. In addition to the financial compensation for the attacks in his territory, most of the lands that were abandoned by Antiochus were to be transferred over to Pergamene control. This more than quintupled the size of Eumenes' kingdom to encompass most of Western, Central, and Southern Asia Minor. Of course, this would attract attention from their neighbors, namely Bithynia and Pontus. But the Adelids were now the most powerful rulers in the region, and would in time nurture it into a prosperous realm. The Republic claimed no territories for itself, but the removal of Antiochus from Asia Minor and the strengthening of their longtime allies was able to secure a long-term peace, no longer troubled by the prospects of a Seleucid Western expansion. However, Rome's short-term activities in Greece and Asia Minor were not yet over, as another Roman commission would be organized similar to what they did in Greece following the war with Philip. Antiochus was no longer directly involved in this process. And so, I will dedicate the rest of this episode to talk about the final part of his career. With the former crown prince Antiochus having died nearly five years earlier, Seleucus had been designated the new co-ruler as early as April of 189. He was also married to his sister Laodike, the widow to the now deceased Antiochus. His final surviving son Mithridates was also shipped off to Rome and we have no evidence that his young wife Eubea played any significant role after the war. There must have been considerable time devoted to organizing the evacuation of his garrisons, or anyone loyal to the Seleucid crown that owned land in Asia Minor. An Antiochene orator from the 4th century AD named Libanius states that the king settled many of these refugees in Antioch to compensate them. With the king busy trying to consolidate his now reduced empire, there were other problems to contend with. The Peace of Apamea had the unintentional side effect of broadcasting the weakening of Seleucid power to its vassals. One of these was Armenia. Antiochus forced the submission of Xerxes I during his Anabasis in 212, and cemented the relationship with a marriage to his sister Antiochus. Xerxes is said to have died shortly thereafter with one very late source accusing Antiochus of poisoning her now-deceased husband so Antiochus could take it over. Strabo tells us that the country was divided between two figures named Artaxius and Zariadris, who are referred to as Antiochus's generals, though a final Arontid king named Arontes IV is attested to in the sources before they seize control. It seems that both men declared independence after the Apamea Conference, each taking the title of king. As the founder of the Artaxia dynasty, Artaxius took over Greater Armenia, while Zariadris formed the kingdom of Safine in the southeast, the northern territory between the Tigris and Euphrates River. In nearby Cappadocia, Ariarathes IV abandoned the alliance with his father-in-law and made a deal with the Roman Republic, offering to pay 600 talents to compensate for his collusion with the Seleucids. It turns out that Eumenes was betrothed to his daughter Stratonike, 
and so he was able to get the penalty reduced by half on account of the Pergamene king's good word. There were others who were more ambiguous in their responses. In distant Bactria, King Euthydemus I had since died, and was succeeded by his son, Demetrius I Soter. Demetrius had been the one to broker the peace between Antiochus and his father in 206, and was technically promised a Seleucid princess to wed, though no concrete evidence for this marriage exists. Yet the death of his father meant that the Treaty of Bactra was at an end, and Demetrius was on the verge of conducting his own expedition south of the Hindu Kush into Arachosia, which would establish the line of the Indo-Greek rulers. Dated between 200 to 195, the Kuliab inscription gives Euthydemus the title Basileos Megistos, greatest of all kings, no doubt an attempt to outclass Antiochus's title of Basileos Megas, great king. Parthia had also recently had a new ruler named Phreopatias take over in 191, the third of the Arsakid dynasty. There is no explicit evidence of him revolting or undertaking campaigns at this time, but he started to mint coins that carried the more royal Basileos, replacing the title of Autocrator on earlier strikes. Though not stated outright, it is very possible that Antiochus planned another expedition to the east to combat the growing unrest of his vassal states, for we find him journeying into the upper satrapies. In the Babylonian astronomical diary documenting the events of 187, Antiochus made a visit to the temple of Esagil to offer sacrifices in February of that year. We are also told that he was met with the priests and the governor of Babylon, who presented several gifts like a golden crown and other temple treasures, and among these goods was a robe purportedly belonging to Nebuchadnezzar II, the most famous ruler of the Neo-Babylonian Empire. While a hated figure in the Jewish tradition, the Babylonians revered him as the greatest king of their recent history, and he served as a model for the Greeks as both a conqueror and builder. By receiving his royal costume, Antiochus was thus literally and symbolically presented as the heir of Nebuchadnezzar, much how like Greek and Roman statesmen would wear the clothing of Alexander in emulation, which would fit his well-broadcasted image of being a world conqueror despite his recent defeats. Such a gift would certainly help massage his wounded pride, but the offering of precious metals would have been of more practical value given the need for cash to pay off the Roman indemnity. Ironically, it would be for want of silver and gold which would cost Antiochus dearly. In the summer of 187, the king and his men traveled into the territory of Elamais, located along the northern coastline of the Persian Gulf following the Tigris River, the lands of historical Elam in southwest Iran. Elamais was under Seleucid authority and technically not in rebellion. They had provided troops for the Battle of Magnesia, but there existed a temple dedicated to the Mesopotamian god Bel, which was richly furnished with treasure. Seleucid kings already had a habit of making visits to the temples of local deities to strip them of their wealth when in need of cash for campaigns. Antiochus himself had done so at the temple of Anahita of Ekbatna in 211 or 210, when he seized about 4,000 talents worth of silver to help pay for the enormous costs of his anabasis. 3,000 talents had already been paid out to the Romans on top of his own costs from the war, so cash was undeniably short on supply. Diodorus tells us that the king accused the Elmayan leaders of revolt, but this was only after he decided to seize the goods inside. As his men began to pillage the temple, a crowd of angry locals surrounded and attacked the blasphemers. 
Antiochus seems not to have taken the bulk of his army into the temple, and during the melee he was surrounded and slain by the vengeful Elmaeans. At the age of 56 years old, King Antiochus III Megas was killed in action after an unprecedented 35 years on the Seleucid throne, the longest in the dynasty's entire history. No other Hellenistic monarch since Seleucus I, or even Alexander the Great himself, had gone so far and conquered so much. From his earliest days as king, he restored a dynasty on the brink of extinction, put down rebellious satraps from Anatolia to Afghanistan, and reduced his long-hated Ptolemaic rivals to the status of a second-class power. When confronted with defeats such as at Raphia, he managed to bounce back with relentless ambition. Even after the death of the crown prince Antiochus, he still had two surviving sons to take the diadem when he was gone, and multiple daughters that were married off to the leading dynasts. If he had died in 195 following the end of the Fifth Syrian War, his reputation would have been unparalleled. Yet, his final years on the throne saw major losses that severely affected the Seleucid realm. The war with Rome was, as I have made clear in the previous discussion, born out of factors both external and internal, but his final decision to invade Greece was a major tactical blunder. Clearly, he or his advisors were not keeping abreast of the political situation in Greece to see if the Aetolians were painting an accurate picture. The choice to head into Greece with only 10,000 men, which is stressed by the sources as being far too small to conceivably conquer and hold the region, feels like a knee-jerk reaction rather than a calculated move. It relied too much on the military support of the Aetolians, too much on his supposed positive reception by the Greeks. If we are to assume he intended it to be a gesture of goodwill to his Aetolian allies, then he was foolish to think that the Romans would not retaliate to such an intrusion. Once in the thick of war, his performance was a far cry from the warrior king that undertook the Anabasis. Polybius considered Antiochus to be a disappointment in his later years, compared to the energy of his youth. There are several points where Antiochus is described as indecisive, absent-minded, or even afraid of having to deal with the likes of Scipio Africanus. Appian even goes so far as to explain it using divine intervention. The change in attitude is remarkable, and I cannot help but speculate on whether the sudden death of Prince Antiochus and Queen Laodice in such a short span of time may have sent the king into a state of depression which he never really shook off. Some have viewed the death of Antiochus as the beginning of the end of the Seleucid dynasty, financially and militarily hamstrung by the Romans, doomed to wither away from either civil wars or invasion. This is a bit of a hyperbole, since they remained quite powerful for a fair amount of time, but it is worth looking at the state of the empire as it stood in 187. Though the loss of his territory in Thrace and Asia Minor was a major blow, Antiochus's conquests had greatly expanded the empire and left it larger than he inherited it. It is estimated that just prior to the Battle of Magnesia, roughly 15,000 to 20,000 talents of silver were brought into the treasury each year. Following the loss of territories in Asia Minor, this number may have been reduced to 10,000 to 15,000 talents. By any measure, this was a massive hit, but this still was an incredible sum to collect, and the empire was in a far better financial position at the end of his career than when he started. Coily Syria was now his, and Seleucid authority over the upper satrapies had at least been restored, with all pretenders to the throne eliminated. Roman intervention put the prospects of Western expansionism to bed, but they did not infringe upon the king's right to wage war in Asia. 
the treasury would refill in time, new armies would be recruited, and the power of the Seleucids could be restored to some capacity. Yet, as is quite reasonably pointed out by scholar John D. Granger, quote, Antiochus's final failure illustrates all too clearly the fatal weakness of the Seleucid kingdom. It was large and wealthy, but it depended for its continuance on the life of one man and on constant activity by the king. The necessary institutions of government were not strong enough to hold it together in the absence of the king. End quote. Before his meeting with the Roman Republic, the unprecedented length of Antiochus's reign and seemingly endless energy allowed the Seleucid realm to become the most powerful state in the Hellenistic world. With his death, though, many of the treaties that he struck were going to be voided, places like Bactria, Parthia, and Egypt. If they were looking to remain the dominant political force east of the Mediterranean, then the subsequent rulers would have to meet the challenges of empire head-on with the same vigor and determination. Whether they would be capable of doing so is a question that will be answered in due time. And with that, we bring our discussion on the Seleucid Empire to a close, at least for the immediate future. Here we are at the end of 2023, and before you go, I wanted to give you at least an outline of what I have planned for 2024. We will start the new year off with episode 94, covering the period of 189 to 183 BC, focusing chiefly on the Roman Republic, Greece, and Asia Minor. Episode 95 brings us back to Egypt to witness the end of the Great Revolt and the relative stabilization of the Ptolemaic Kingdom. We will then take a break from the narrative and spend a handful of episodes discussing the developments of science during the Hellenistic period, medicine, geography, astronomy, engineering, etc. This will take us into the summer, and we will return to the narrative to chronicle the final days of the Antigonid dynasty in Macedonia. Lastly, we will then turn to Syria and Egypt to cover the Sixth Syrian War, the reign of Antiochus IV, and we will begin our series on the Maccabean Revolt and Hellenistic Judea. At some point, I will open the floodgates for episode 100, which will be another Q&A session. I'm interested to see how my answers may have changed since the last one over three years ago, but I will make an announcement for you all as we get closer, so that way you can submit all your questions via social media or email. That should be just about everything, and I wish you all a safe and happy holiday season. In the meanwhile, you've been listening to The Hellenistic Age Podcast.